Good day, good folks. You are listening to Talk That Keeps You Woke. And with your awakening, we hope that you will take in the information and knowledge we provide. So make sure you like and subscribe while you hop on this ride as we inform, persuade, entertain, and engage in discussion. Welcome to Pot Liquor Podcast, which is knowledge to feed your soul. I make up one half of Pot Liquor. I go by Dr. A, the inquisitive one. A great debater, Mr. Slow Talker, a rhetorician, and an all-around nice guy, and a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. The other half of Potlicker is my homie, my dear friend for more than 30 years, Kim Parker Jackson Esquire, the legal one, Mrs. Creativity, never obnoxious, the gifted one, a terrific lady, and a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Okay, what's happening, partner? How was your week? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. How are you, Dr. A? I'm fine myself. I'm good. I recuperated this week. Um, School's about to start up. We're off a spring break, so I'm ready to get back into action. I'm just happy that we made it through another week and I'm happy for daylight savings time. The days appear longer. I can go outside and walk. And as usual, had a busy week. Um, Yesterday, I went straight from a doubleheader baseball game to to a piano rehearsal with our son. So I'm very proud of him. He's a very hard worker. Okay. Well, as always, we start our show off with our wow, which stands and this week we're going to hear from Brother Frederick Douglass. Power can nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Um, Basically, if you don't stand up for something that you believe in or if you don't fight against the forces um, then nothing will change so the voice of resistance the voice of activism you know uh, the voice of protest is very much needed if not things won't change they will just stay status quo what's your thoughts as usual dr a you nailed it um and i agree with everything you said the only thing that i would add is that that demand has to be persistent i am a proponent of oppressed people all over the world and that demand of that demand of power has to be consistent because they are definitely not going to give up that demand uh, up you know, give up that power without a fight. Okay. Well said. Okay. Before we get into what's going on, uh, we're going to get into our first plug of the day. And that plug is the iPhone. Uh, so the iPhone is something that a lot of Americans have, you know, and like any smartphone, it is very useful. Uh, I think Apple did a good job of making this phone like needed. Like 
how many of us leave the house without our phone and have to circle back to get it because we store a lot of important information on here, our schedule, our different alarms that we have or alerts that we have. So the iPhone uh, also serves as a computer. Um, so it's very useful and it's always near us. So the iPhone is our first plug of the week. Let us move on. And let us move on. All right. So today, we are going to get into... into what's going on in the country this week. Um, so we're going to start off with an interesting bill in hmm. the state of Florida. Uh, it's an anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion bill uh, that uh, has the possibilities or, of eliminating black fraternities and sororities. So I'm going to let my partner talk. I start off with this. How do you feel about it? Well, I hope this bill does not become law because it's a bad idea. Another bad idea, another dumb DeSantis debacle. <laughs> That's what I think this is. I think that there's so many other issues that can be addressed in this state. I don't understand why they are focusing on the little progress that has been made in terms of diversity. Even with the DEI programs that are in place, there's still underrepresentation of non-white students and faculty, and there's still a lack of diversity. So why is this bill even necessary? I know that people are up in arms because People are saying that this could actually eradicate the divine nine on campus. And I think that is an issue that is of concern. But my overall impression of this bill is that it's just not necessary. Like why, why even have this question of whether the divine nine will be able to exist on campus? It's, the bill just in general should not be passed as law. It's not helping anyone. I don't see how this improves anyone's life at all. What do you think? Well, I mean, I concur with you. Um, I think eliminating these uh, DEI um, bills, uh, I mean, eliminating the, these uh, programs uh, mm -hmm. is reprehensible. Um, I feel like they're just eliminating um, the possibilities and the opportunities for um, people of color mm -hmm. and not just people of color, um, the LBGTQ community, uh, community um, the veterans, uh, disabled people. It's not just about race. It's uh, all of these things that they're doing. And DEI came into effect because people weren't getting the opportunities. Right. I feel like 
folks feel like when DEI comes in, that the elimination of white folks from certain positions or certain jobs will start to happen. They see it as affirmative action. Oh, okay, now we got to um, reach a quota um, for different communities, and that takes away jobs from us. Um, yeah, because I, I, I one thing that concerns me here is that the bill provides for the board of trustees to select the faculty. When before the faculty was selected by a committee of a diverse committee of people who could ensure that there would be diverse faculty on, on these campuses. So it's very concerning that now the governor can come in and appoint people to this board of trustees who would then select the faculty. And we know how that's going to end. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there are going to be fewer people of, of color that are going to be hired, I think, in that, in that, in that uh, if, if the bill passes. So this is overall just a bad idea. I mean, I do you think that it's possible that they could ban uh, sororities, black sororities and fraternities from existing on campus? I know a, a lot of people are concerned that this legislation will lead to that. Do you think that's a possibility? I'm not sure. I think it can take away this, a little bit of funding that they get, but people will be up in arms about that situation because this is these are not organizations that are funded big time like minority affairs department of minority affairs or something like that on campus which gets a huge budget to do things on campus um to um attract or to do things for people of color mm -hmm. and um, other communities on campus to have programs, uh, forums, and things of that nature. The state doesn't want to fund that. And like I said, take a visit to these PWI, these institutions, and see how inclusive or inclusive it is you know diversity equity and inclusion didn't come about just off of a whim it was it came out of necessity exactly necessity is the mother of invention like, yeah like yeah so you go to schools and i guess people don't realize like when you go somewhere i guess it's like going to a foreign country and you don't see your culture right now you're there to visit and experience another culture but if you had to live somewhere that didn't have any cultural things that you can go to just simple things i remember when i used to live in iowa this is before satellite radio was out and the internet was just like in its infancy stage there was no r&b music there was no black churches um, and it, it was difficult, honestly, to find something cultural to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you have that cultural void, you're looking for something. And that's the same thing that happens at these PWI campuses, you know, true. If you're not the dominant, like at 
Texas A&M University is 3.6% African-American and Africans. So that's a very small number because the yeah. population of the school is like 72,000. I think it's like 60,000 at the campus I'm at. And it's a small number. So what, what do you do? You know, if you grow up one way um, and you're used to your culture and then you go to an institution where you see none of that, it's difficult. And that's why I tell my students, if you want to, you know, at, at Texas A&M, the majority of my students are white. Teaching at Texas Southern, since it's an HBCU, it's majority black. So I tell my students up at Texas A&M, if you really want to understand what people of color go through at a PWI, go down to Prairie View and take a class, which is at an HBCU, which falls under the umbrella of Texas A&M University. So they can take a class at that campus, go there for a semester, sit in the class, um, and be surrounded by a majority of African-Americans. And just after that semester, come back and talk to me and tell me what you experienced or how you felt. And um, that's a good that's a good suggestion. I think. So they look at me like I'm strange, but they understand what I'm saying. You know, so. DeSantis and Abbott, they're doing these things because they have very little concern about, to me, people of color. And that's why we have to get out and vote. You got to understand who you're voting for. You have to understand the power structure that goes on and people you need to vote out or vote against, you know, if they're not going to represent your agenda. Well, I mean, in terms of the divine nine on campus, I do think it is possible that this bill could lead to, you know, an abolishment of uh, black sororities and fraternities on these campuses, because it says that the bill aims to prevent any funds to promote, support, maintain, or maintain any programs or campus activities that support or adopt diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you you know, if you dry the money up for these organizations, they could cease to exist. Um, they depend on that money. As, you know, it, it even... No, they don't. The money is small, honestly. I know, know, but for example, say if the organizations want to meet on campus, you could argue that if the university is paying for these facilities, then having sorority, fraternity meetings there would be against the rules, would be, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because they're paying for those, for, for the facilities. And so if you have a meeting there, you're promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. And well, so- If they do that, then they couldn't have meetings for white fraternities and white sororities. That's why I don't think they could do that because- Well, that's not promoting diversity though. What? Having a white sorority is promoting diversity? A white fraternity is promoting diversity. Having a black fraternity is promoting diversity. Yes, it's because just like you said, it's providing a safe place, a place where people uh, can get together and just have a cultural experience and be in an affinity group with like with people like them. 
And so that's what well, these sororities and fraternities let, can let's do. Let's say this. I will tell you all the Divine Nine, and I know this, they don't have any clause in there that says uh, white people are not allowed to join. Well, that's true. But so what I'm saying is just like a lot of African-Americans don't join white fraternities and sororities, a lot of white people do not join black fraternities and sororities. So you can't say is it's diversity when all are welcome to come out and try to join these organizations because it would be against the law if, you know, black fraternities did so. Well, so if you, if you eliminate that, then you're you're saying you're going to eliminate any minority club that's on campus. Exactly. And that's what people are afraid of, because there were some uh, state legislators who suggested an amendment to this bill that would clearly say that black fraternities and sororities would be excluded from being affected by this legislation. And they did not want to add that amendment. So that tells me that they could possibly interpret this law to exclude those black fraternities and sororities. Because as I always say, I, I am an attorney. This is not my area of expertise. But one thing that I have learned about the law is the law is whatever the people in power say it is. Because they get to interpret it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I think it is possible that these uh, organizations can be eradicated on these campuses. So therefore, as I said at the top, I think this legislation is a bad idea. I hope the people in Florida protest. I hope the people in Florida call it out and prevent this bill from becoming law. Don't don't fall for it. And let us move on. All right. So we're going to move on to the Texas takeover of Houston School. This is going on uh, in the state of Texas. They are trying to, no, they are going to take over uh, HISD, which stands for uh, Houston Independent School Districts. What's your thoughts on this? Well, I think this is another bad idea. Um, I think that this is just a, you know, just saying that the schools are failing in Houston is just pretext for taking over. I think the real reason is it's an attempt to obtain and maintain political power in a state that's predominantly non-white. So, yeah, I think that Governor Abbott is just um, up to his you know, usual nefarious, <laughs> uh, his, you know, just his nefarious ways, because there's, I mean, if they really cared about the schools, they would do what the, the opponents of this uh, takeover are asking. And they have been asking for the Houston inter, inter independent school district to be 
more fully funded. It's underfunded and they're not paying the teachers. So that is what has led to this one school in the district. It's just one school um, that is yeah, underperforming, right? Yeah, we right. Exactly. And so I just think it's pretext. It's just um, uh, there was a. Well, he, I wanted to read something from the USA Today uh, okay. by Carrie Heath in the article. And she said, <coughs> excuse me. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been on tour around Texas advocating for parental control and use of public money for private school vouchers. He said Wednesday that the Houston Independent School District academic issues are deep rooted and, and systemic and the takeover is unrelated to the school voucher push, which people don't believe. Um, she also goes to state that he says there has been a long time failure by HISD. And the victims of the failure are the students, he said. So Democratic lawmakers worry the takeover could have implication for other Texas school districts, especially those in large urban areas. And some cast it as a part of a push by conservative Republicans to remake education across the country. It's a national movement. One of uh, Alma Representative Alma uh, Alma Allen, a Democratic who represents a swath of Southern Houston and is vice chairman of the House Public Education Committee. The Republicans are planning to take over education in the United States. So that was written by Carrie Heath from the USA Today. And I'm stating that this, what they're trying to do is what I learned a long time ago. You know, they're trying to... Um, indoctrinate people deeper into white supremacy. That's just what I believe. They're already taking out different texts, books, uh, uh, books that, that are no longer uh, allowed on the reading list um, in the public schools. Books like Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, Maya Angelou's book, um, even Toni Morrison. So, um, yeah, this is vicious. Yeah. Uh, this is vicious. And there's no evidence that taking over a school district, especially, you know, by the state, is not going to improve the performance of the schools because this has been done before in other schools and other, you know, in other school districts and other major urban uh, areas, for example, New Orleans, Chicago. Um, New York, Baltimore, the state comes in and takes over and then there's no improvement in the school system. So again, I think this is just, just pretextual. They, they're saying that it's because the school is failing, but that's not the real reason. And we know that all politics is local and it starts, it starts with the, the, you know, the board of education, the, the school board. Um, and so if they can come in and take over the schools, they can, you know, harness political power. <clears throat> the other thing is um, the Republicans in that state have methodically set this up to happen. First, they pass a law that says the, the state can come in and take over if one school is underperforming. It's just... I 
Yeah, out of 270 schools. Exactly. So you pass that law. They should have never let that pass. But you pass that law, and now the state has the authority to come in and do that. And then you put the judges in place, federal judges in place, that if the opponents of this sue, you're not going to win. So judges are appointed. And that's why it's important, as you said before, to make sure that you vote so that you have the right people in place who can appoint the right judges and pass the right legislation. Yes. Okay. And let us move on. All right. Our last what's going on for today is the abortion. And this is definitely has been an interesting story. What say you? Well, so Wyoming has become the first day. Well, Wyoming is planning to ban the abortion pill, um, which I was surprised to find out that this is the most popular way to perform an abortion. I didn't know that. Um, people, there's a two pill combination that people take. Mm -hmm. Uh, one is called mifepristone. And then there's another one, um, that you take in conjunction and it causes an abortion. So just in general, I don't, I'm pro-choice. I think everyone should have, uh, every woman should have the right to, uh, make these decisions with, uh, her medical professional and if and I think that abortion pill, if it's been determined to be safe and effective by the Food and Drug Administration, which it has, then it should remain an option for women to be able to choose if if they would like to. So I hope that this does not it's scheduled to take effect in July. Um, but I hope that uh, the attempt. I, I just hope that uh, the the pending legis the pending uh, court case in Texas um, is decided uh, for allowing this drug to continue to be prescribed and utilized by women who choose to do so. What do you think? Um, I'm, you know, for reproductive rights for women. Um, like I said, I think men should stay out of this. <clears throat> um, I don't, you know, I was upset when they made abortion, uh, illegal. Um, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, was overturned. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely for them to, you know, keep the abortion pill. Um, I understand people's beliefs in, you know, um, getting rid of abortion. But like I said, um, I think that should be up to the individual. Um, carrying a baby is one of the most dangerous things um, that women do. Um, and it's their life that they're putting at risk when they're doing so. Um, should and other guess, should other uh -huh. precautions be taken? If you can, yes. But there are there are accidents and things that happen, um, or unintended and, pregnancies. Yeah, yeah, unintended pregnancies. Exactly. Yeah. So, I 
I'm against this uh, legislation to to ban the abortion pill. And I think it's important to distinguish um, the abortion pill from the morning after pill. Um, the morning after pill is supposed to prevent conception. Yeah, it's a contraceptive. Right. So this is an actual abortion pill that would terminate terminate a pregnancy if you take it. Yeah. So yeah, 13 states have already um, banned these abortion pills because they've banned all forms of abortion, right? Right. So yeah, the pending case in Texas is an attempt to make this a national policy because the Food and Drug Administration has already come out and said that these abortion pills are safe and effective. And so the legislation in Texas is trying to get the, or the pending court case in Texas is trying to get the FDA to reverse that determination. And therefore this would, in a sense, become a national policy to ban these abortion pills. Okay. So we hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, we're gonna see what happens. And let us move on. Okay, we're gonna get into our second plug of the day, which is our brain. And this week, I guess we're going with a childhood favorite. <laughs> And an adult favorite. A long time. Yes. Uh, and I'll let you state what it is. So today we would like to talk about Cheerios. <laughs> so look at that. I got the big industrial size box. So, we we yeah. have large um, size boxes here. This is the apple cinnamon. Yeah, so this is the, uh, yeah, and it comes in all flavors. Uh, my family, we, we love Cheerios. Um, this is the Oat Crunch. Uh, <laughs> my son is the one who really likes these. Uh, to be honest, there is a lot of sugar in this particular one. Um, so sometimes we have these as snacks as well. So I try not to eat too many of these. But we also have, the original Cheerios, and this is the one that actually has the, uh, the least amount of sugar. Right. And it says on here on the box that it can actually help lower your cholesterol yes. if it's part of a balanced yes, this diet. Is very, very. So you can see all of mine are flavored. Right. And so when I have Cheerios, I don't eat cereal a lot, but my favorite when I have them are the multigrain ones. And I usually have it, um, have them with uh, almond milk, and it's delicious. I, I'll sometimes I mix them. I'll have the multigrain and put in a few of the oat crunch. Um, but yes, we love Cheerios in the Jackson household. Yes, Cheerios. And let us move on. <laughs> We have a question. It's a question. Address the question. This is a question. So what's the question? 
answer the question. Okay, so the question of the week, our new segment. Well, it's not new. I think this is question number six, actually. What starts with an E and ends with an E, but only has one letter in it? What starts with an E, the letter E, and ends with the letter E, but only has one letter in it? All right. Those of you who are watching on YouTube or by video, on our video platforms, potlickershow at gmail.com. First one to answer the question will win a prize from Pot Liquor Show. So it's P-O-T-L-I-Q-U-O-R-S-H-O-W at gmail.com. Good luck. Yes, good luck. And... And let us move on. All right. So we are bringing in a guest. guest that we are bringing in is a student from Texas A&M University. Um, and she's going to talk to us about a few things. My name is Michaela Renwick. So we're going to start by saying, how are you doing? Today? I'm doing well. How are y'all? Good. Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well. Okay. So tell us a little bit about uh, our audience, a little bit about yourself before we get started. Okay. Sounds good. So I am from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I just moved to Texas last August to start my doctoral degree in communication. So I'm a first year PhD student at Texas A&M. Um, my area of focus and study is... Um, a little bit of rhetoric and a little bit of culture and identity, but a lot of my research drives from Black place in space making and urban development. So I want to look into how Black people make spaces in an environment that is not welcoming to them and what space actually means in terms of how space is a privilege and understanding that capitalism has a huge play and why a lot of Black people don't have that value of like whether it's home ownership or just being able to communicate and gather within public spaces, whether it's virtual spaces as well, and how we're policed online when speaking about specific topics and things along those nature. Okay, uh, before we start, just just shout out your undergrad institution for everybody. Oh, yes. I went to Temple University. So okay. go Owls and also go Eagles because I am fully native. So we love the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so tell us, you know, it's your first year. Tell us the difficulties of being a graduate student. Let's start with that. Okay. So for me, I went straight from undergrad to getting my PhD. So I didn't get a master's in between. So that was a difficulty within itself is the learning environment is extremely different than how you learn in undergrad. A lot of it is discussion based, whereas undergrad, a lot of it's lectured. So knowing that 
you have to do the prep before coming into class and that pressure of being so young in the program and knowing that there's people here that like know more than me have had that field experience, that work experience um, was extremely intimidating when I first came here. So um, I guess you could say like lack of confidence definitely was like stirring in me because I'm like, okay, I'm the only one that is 22 years old in this classroom. And it's like everyone knows what they're talking about. Everyone is like able to spit out all these scholars. And I'm like, I remember this idea, but I don't remember who says it. Or I remember this person, but not exactly what like their um what they were trying to preach or what they were trying to like speak, like speak out to the world in general. So I think that was one of my biggest like things coming into it um, was that like confidence in the classroom. Also, um, moving from Pennsylvania to Texas, very completely different states. Things are extremely different here, especially College Station, Texas, um, is its own place within itself. So um, the adapt adapting to a new environment, adapting to a new program was extremely hard. And then just being a Black woman on top of that in a grad program that does not have many people that look like me, male or female, within the program. And so... Um, kind of carrying that way of I am representing not only myself, but also other Black graduate students in this classroom to like kind of combat the way in which we are talked about and how we don't, there's not a lot of Black people that go for higher education. And so that was always something like in the back of my mind. Um, the readings are a lot harder than what I was reading in undergrad. They're more extensive, they're longer, um, and definitely writing a lot more than I've ever written in undergrad. I did a lot of independent studies, but the pressure was not the same because I'm doing this for me versus now I'm doing this for a grade. So I was able to kind of leisure write longer papers, whereas now it's like, okay, I have a term paper due for this class. By this time, I need to start the research as soon as the class starts and just kind of finding like that groove and balance. Um, and then I guess adding teaching and research on top of that, I'm a teacher assistant and a research assistant. Um, so teaching students that are my age or very close to my age is definitely a challenge within itself. Um, I love public speaking. So being able to teach that class was very exciting, but realizing it's a lot different when you're actually doing the grading and you're not necessarily always making the coursework. Um, so I would definitely say that has challenges within itself is being very similar to the students in terms of my age, um, but also being very different in terms of my race and my gender. Um, so not to cut you off, mm -hmm. we just were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, in the state of Texas, Governor Abbott has done away with that. And the chancellor at Texas A&M, you know, uh, concur with, uh, Abbott and he is doing away with like diversity hiring mm -hmm. and things of that nature. What are your thoughts on that um <laughs> so coming from like firstly i'm not surprised i guess you could say which is like the hard part about all these issues in the world is that like it doesn't necessarily come to as a surprise but it's also extremely frustrating because walking into these spaces and knowing that students will not get the correct training in their classrooms by for me, I know for me, it's very important to be taught by people of different backgrounds. And I think that's what DEI and diversity allows within these institutions is to be, because like 70% of the, like your learning is outside of the classroom. 
And so within inside the classroom as well and creating these relationships with people that only look like you and only look like these white students in these like places, it's very harmful to their learning and to it creates a bubble. And so when you live in a bubble that people don't only look like you, you have no way of navigating through the real world because the real world does not look like them, right? And so it's frustrating as a student that wants to be taught by Black women, that wants to be taught by Black men, that wants to be taught by other minority and um, women and men of color, that this is even something that's being like placed into my institution, but it's more harmful, I think, too, for those that are in like K through 12. And that's like those prominent years of development. And when you don't, when you look back and you had no professor of color teaching you, it already creates this ideology of who and what black people and other minorities are. Yeah. So yes, I, I agree with that. Um, so one thing you said, I, I have questions, mm -hmm. but um, well, first I would like to know, have you thought about what career path you want to take and how you plan to utilize uh, your doctorate? Yes. So I do want to be a professor. Um, that is definitely one of my goals. But like my overarching like major goal is to be a keynote speaker, to travel, to speak about things that I'm passionate about and to like educate through those bigger platforms. And I also want to be in like an author. So, yeah, that that's is. the other fascinating thing that I heard you say is that you actually love public speaking, which is probably the most common phobia that people have is <laughs> public speaking. So I was just curious, what is it that you love about it? And what advice would you just give to the average person about public speaking? Definitely. So I think to start, like, before I get straight to your question, for me, my love for public speaking came from my dad's a pastor. So oh. watching my dad every week, throughout the week, like being up in front of these platforms and speaking, I'm like, oh, like I want to do that, but in a different way. And so that's kind of where my parents instilled in me where I, being the pastor's daughter, I had to go up in front of the church and I had to read the scripture or do announcements or things along those lines. So that kind of from a young age. So I think that definitely shaped where my confidence came from with public speaking. I like my mom. So then on the flip side, to answer your question, my mom always told me that education is the only thing the white man can't take from you. And so you think about how they take so much away from us. They take our freedom. They they do all these things. But education is what's inside of you, your knowledge. And so for me, it was about spreading that message through public speaking, because we education is the one way to get free is how I look at it. There's a reason why we weren't allowed to learn. We weren't allowed to learn how to read and write at one point. So education is that power and knowledge is that power that a lot of us overlook because it's so preached into like our communities that like getting out is athletics, it's entertainment, it's all these things. But education is always pushed under that, like under the rim. So for me, public speaking is that way of spreading the education to communities that look like me and that need that help in that. And I don't want to say saving, but need that guidance to get to where they need to be in public speaking and platforms that are larger is like one of the ways that I truly want to do it because it's one thing to be in a lecture hall, but it's a different way of pu public speaking and lecturing are like two different things. And it's that engagement that I want to do. And then your follow, sorry, like your final question was like, what advice that I give mm -hmm. is do it to yourself in your room. So like I practice a lot, whether I give a presentation of just recording myself, rewatching those videos, I do it in front of my family. I used to give like many presentations 
um, when I had to do it for class in front of my mom, my dad, my aunts and all of them. So just that practice at home can give you that comfortability and knowing what triggers that like stress and that anxiety and ways to combat it. So for me, like I'll recite some of my favorite scriptures before I do any type of public speaking because that gives me that calmness and that peace before I go. So kind of finding like your little rituals, whether it's a hype song, a prayer, script, like whatever it is for you, like that's kind of what helps me. That is excellent advice. And I also agree with you that Education is something that once you obtain it, nobody can take it away from you. Unfortunately, it's becoming more and more expensive and it's not accessible to everyone. So um, I was just curious as to whether you were able to receive any financial aid or scholarships and, and give other students who have the same aspirations as you to obtain a doctorate, give them some advice on things that they can do to gain that access to this higher education that we are all a proponent of. Right, exactly. So for um, my doctorate program, I am fully funded and I'm here on a teacher assistantship, which means that I have to do 20 hours a week in teaching um, an undergraduate like level class. And then that pays for my tuition in that aspect. So that was one way that I was able to come to Texas is that I don't have to pay for this degree, which is amazing. Um, And a lot of that, I can't talk about how I got there without the foundation, which was undergrad. In undergrad, I did not get any, I got minimum scholarships, I would say. Financial aid was very, not very kind <laughs> in terms of giving me money. Um, and same thing with outside scholarship applications. Um, I had the privilege of living in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia throughout like my life. My parents were split up. So my dad stayed in the city. My mom lived in a suburb. So I was able to stay and use that. And so a lot of times they feel as though certain areas, they have all that they need. So that was a very hard way for me to like get scholarship money for school. So debt is piling up for undergrad. I will say that. But the hard work that I put in undergrad was what made it able for me to want to keep going for another degree because I told myself undergrad is the only degree that I am putting myself in debt for. And so when I did applications, I actually got a full ride for a master program to University of South Florida and a full ride to University of Texas at Austin. Um, and both of those were master programs and a and was the only doctoral program that I received. But a lot of people don't realize that like you can get your master programs funded. It's all about networking and talking to the right people and using your professors that you're currently in, whether it is a master program or it's an undergraduate program, because they are the ones that have those resources and know specific people. Um, there's a professor that like I worked with, um, I want to say my summer semester leading into my summer semester leading into my junior year. And he was the one that told me that, you know, you can go straight through. It was like Texas A&M takes students that go straight through and gave me a list of schools that did. So without him, I wouldn't have known that I could like kind of skip over my master's and go to my PhD. So being that teacher pet thing that everyone's like, don't do, that was what got me to where I'm at is getting to the teachers that no one liked, getting to the teachers that everyone loved, asking to be on research projects. I was on a group research project in undergrad. Um, and doing more than the average student is kind of what I think allowed me to get to where I'm at. I'm not the best test taker. My GPA was good, but it wasn't amazing. Um, and I was also very active in undergrad. I was the president of the Black Student Union, president of NAACP. I was a recording secretary for that uh, for my sorority. I um, 
just did a lot of those things in that aspect. So I think that's kind of what set the tone for me to be where I'm at. Awesome. Ask her what sorority she's in, Kim. What was that? Ask her what sorority she's a part of. What sorority are you in? The number one, the Delta only one? The only one, Delta Sigma Theta <laughs> Sorority Incorporated. <laughs> hey, sorority. Hey. So, yes, this has been um, excellent. And uh, that you've shared some very um, powerful information with our listeners. And I'm sure you just saved somebody a whole lot of money <laughs> and inspired somebody <laughs> to pursue higher education, especially a master's and um, doctoral degree. So, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on and uh, spewing the knowledge that you did. We hope to have you back on next semester. I know you have papers to write, and I want to wish you happy writing on that. And Yes, and all the best in your future endeavors. Yeah. Thank doctor. you so much. That's the <laughs> luck. Take care. Take care. Y'all have a good one. You uh, too. Bye-bye. Bye. Interesting. Awesome. It was yeah. nice meeting her. She is uh, very talented. Yeah. And she is, look out for her in the future because she is definitely going to make a, a splash. Dr. Renwick. Yes, Dr. <laughs> Renwick, it will be. Yes. Yes, it will be. And let us move on. Like this. Keep the keep on. All right. So we are moving on to little known black history facts. Yes. So today, in honor of uh, Women's History Month and Everyday Black History, uh, we want to highlight Callie House. So Callie House uh, was a leader of the National Ex-Slave Mutual Mutual Relief, Bounty, and Pension Association, one of the first organizations to campaign for reparations for slavery in the, uh, in the United States. Callie House was born enslaved in Rutherford County near Nashville, Tennessee. At the age of 22, she married William House. They had six children, five of which survived. After William died, House supported her family by being a washerwoman. At 36, she began organizing hundreds of thousands of people calling for U.S. reparations, building a powerful movement for which she was unjustly imprisoned in 1916. So... Callie House is an example of an ordinary person who did extraordinary things. So hopefully she can inspire us to do the same. Callie House. And let us move on. sorry i was about to say i can't hear you dr uh, Where are you? let me repeat that i'm sorry we are moving on to uh 
our plug, our uh, podcast plug, um, which is All the Smoke um, with Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson. You can watch it on Showtime, and it's also uh, on several different platforms. It's very interesting. They're very direct. They ask great questions. Um, so make sure that you check out their um, their podcast. On. Okay. Let us move on. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this, or you can get with that. I think you can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this, or you can get with that. I think you can get with this. All right, so this is our this or that segment, and this week we are having sweet potato pie face off against peach cobbler <laughs> so it's this or that which one you like you only can pick one remember we want to hear from you so make sure you email us at p-o-t-l-i-q-u-o-r-s-h-o-w at gmail.com that's pot liquor show at gmail.com Right. And of course, you can't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and tell us your favorite. You only can pick one. So, yes, tell us your favorite. Which one do you actually like? Yes. Yeah, uh, so, so we'll start with you. Okay. So, for me, um, as I said, you really can't go wrong with either one of these. It's, it's clearly a matter of preference. And I would just like to state at the outset that we are not advocating that you <laughs> that you partake in either one of these delectable desserts um, too often, you know, uh, everything in moderation. Um, so I do at least like to every, uh, at least once a year, every Thanksgiving, I'd like to enjoy, I'm gonna go with sweet potato pie. And, it's interesting for me, it's not only the deliciousness of sweet potato pie with the cinnamon and the brown sugar and the nutmeg and all of the spices coming together with the flaky crust and the sweet potatoes. Um, it's not only that, it's also just the nostalgia of it because every Thanksgiving growing up, we would, my mother would make, God rest her beautiful soul, um, she would make sweet potato pie and everybody loved her pie. Interestingly enough, um, I actually didn't like it that much growing up. It's just, it's just a familiar, it's almost like having a familiar friend around. It's just warm and fuzzy and just cozy, just the smell of it and everything. But as I've gotten older, I actually enjoy it more. And um, I found a recipe that I really like called um, Norma's Black Bottom Pie, where you put the brown sugar on the crust before you put the filling in there. So I, I found a recipe that I really love and I make the pies every year and people just devour them. Um, and then also the the peach cobbler. I like peach cobbler, but I'm very particular about my food. Like I don't, I, I like the, the, the fruit in apple pie and peach pie and cobblers and things of that nature. I like for the fruit to be kind of a little bit mushy. I don't, if it's crunchy, I can't do it. And, and what I enjoy most about it is the crust and the, you know, that little syrupy filling. I like that, that combination together. So if, 
for me, peaches are okay, but I, I, I like apples more. So that's why I can, I'm kind of siding with the sweet potato pie here for the nostalgia and for the flavor and the taste. And then also with the peach cobbler in particular, if it's not right, and if it's not, you know, the crust is not flaky and the, the fruit is not, you know, soft and mushy. Well, we we talking about yeah 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 we talking about the best peach cobbler pie, not average peach cobbler okay, pie. Okay, so any, anything could be made bad, like you know. So we well, talking. it's not about bad. Alcohol. It's just not. not no, but bad. I'm saying it's anything just... can be made bad. So That's we true. want your we we trying to compare your best against your best. Okay. Mine hands down is sweet potato pie. Sweet potato pie. And, you know, I'm not advocating this, but sweet potato pie is like a drug to me. You know? <laughs> I don't smoke marijuana, but those of y'all who are addicted to marijuana, I'm addicted to sweet potato pie, but I'm type two, so I can't have it a lot. Um, my mother used to make a, make them too, God rest her soul, um, and she used to give them out, and all the folks back at home who's listening to this know this, that she used to give them out during the holidays. Um, she would bake several. So I kind of took that up now and I'm doing the same thing down here between Thanksgiving and Christmas is making a lot. And, and I actually give the pies away. I don't sell them. Um, they taste very good. This year, I kind of use Kim's uh, brown sugar on the bottom of the crust and I always do a deep dish. Um, so I love sweet potato pie. I can't eat peaches because I'm allergic. Um, but I do have the apple cobbler, and I'm going to say that is delicious, especially with <laughs> Alamode on there. Oh, so I, I'm I'm a sweet tooth junkie, but sweet potato pie is probably next to fried chicken is my favorite uh, thing to eat. You give me those two, you know, I, I'll be playing it at the table all day. So yeah, that's that's um, basically my thoughts on that so my vote goes to sweet potato pie um make sure you email us at pot liquor show pot liquor show at gmail.com so that was i'll this or that and now we'll get into one of our favorite segments, and that is. Oh, hell no. And we'll say it one more time. Oh, hell no. Okay, this week's all hell no goes to the state of Florida uh, for trying to pass the DEI bill that will possibly eliminate black fraternities and sorority. So that is that. And let us move on. Give it up, give it up, give it up, yo. Give it up, give it up, gotta give it up. Give it up, give it up, give it up, yeah. So this week we are going to give it up to Ruth E. Carter, who is the only black woman to win two Oscar awards. She won um, best costume design for Black Panther and Wakanda Forever. Um, so she has won two Oscars uh, for both of those movies. So we congratulate her and we give it up to her. 
What say you about Ruth E. Carter? Can you hear me? All right, so I think we having a little technical difficulties. My partner, so as always, we'll do the wrap up. So we always start with the plugs. We did the iPhone, we did Cheerios, and our podcast was all the smoke, right? Uh, the wow of the week was from Frederick Douglass. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Um, our what's going on was the anti-DIE bill uh, in the state of Florida. Texas takeover of Houston schools and the abortion bill. Our question of the week was what starts with an E and ends with an E but only has one letter in it. Make sure you uh, email us at potlickershow at gmail.com. We interviewed Michaela Renwick, uh, Texas A&M University graduate. Little known black history fact went to Cali House. And uh, our list of that was sweet potato pie versus peach cobbler. Uh, all hell no went to the state of Florida and we gave it up to Ruthie Carter because she's the first black woman to win two Oscars best costume design. So since we can't hear my partner. Hey, Dr. Eng. Oh, she's back. I'm back. Okay. So <laughs> Sorry about the technical difficulties, but I'm back. She's going to wrap it up for us. How we always end our show. Yes, I would like to just thank everyone for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us. And as always, in parting, we wish you love, peace, and soul. Okay, and so, y'all, we got to go. We will see you next week. Thanks for riding with us.